Well, as you can see, uh, Pastor Franks is sick tonight, so I found out uh, this morning I was going to be teaching. So uh, we have scattered thoughts on the subject of prayer <laughs> tonight. Um, but what I want to do, um, we're continuing our study on the subject of worship and working through the elements of worship. Um, now you'll remember uh, the elements are those specific things that we do in worship. Preaching, praying, reading the scriptures, um, celebrating the sacraments. These are all the kind of parts of the worship service. Um, if, I think most everybody was here for our um, service this last Sunday. And even just looking through... Um, through the bulletin that we had. You know, these are the elements that we've had. And so we, we spent a few weeks kind of laying down general principles of what worship is, what it's for, how we know what worship is to be. And then we're just working our way basically through our bulletin and uh, looking at those different things. And so we'll be coming back to that in a moment. But um, my thought tonight, just as we think about prayer, um, prayer is one of those things that is a big part of our worship. But it's not, it's not it's something that we do not only in corporate worship, but it's really supposed to permeate all of life. And so I thought it'd be good to kind of start at the broadest level, and then we'll work our way down. And what I, what I want to do towards the end is just basically work our way through our bulletin. There are four or five prayers that we pray every time we gather, and I want to explain what those are and what they do. But I want to start at that broader level and just asking, what is prayer? What does the Bible have to say about this? What, what, what part does prayer play in worship specifically? And then we'll kind of work through um, the specifics of these, uh, the prayers that we use. But let me just throw out that general question to you. What is prayer? How would you define it? How would you explain that to someone who asks? Tim? Prayer um, usually from Bible when you say... You're praying, you're having a conversation, a private conversation usually with God. Yeah. That's actually one of the ways that one of the church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, said prayer is conversing with God. It's talking with God. So there's, that's, that's a big part of it. What, what else how could we add to that? I mean, he said mostly private, but there is also, uh, I mean, you're just talking there is a prayer that we have for worship service. Um, and there are corporate prayers that happen. And Jesus, when he prayed uh, the Lord's Prayer, it was in the company of his disciples. Uh, and when he prayed his high priestly prayer in John, that was also mm-hmm. So there became a corporate aspect to it, too. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. Corporate conversation. Yeah, corporate conversation as well. Exactly. Yeah. So prayer is a conversation. Prayer is something that happens between you know between God's people and and God himself um, I think a wonderful definition can be found in the uh, in the shorter catechism this is something that's brief enough we could probably all memorize it if we just uh, put our minds to it but I find it very helpful it says what is prayer the answer prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will In the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Let me read that one more time. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things that are agreeable to His will. In the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement 
of His mercies. Now, if you look at the larger catechism, it has an almost identical answer, only it takes out one phrase that's used here and adds in the phrase uh, that we do so by the help of God's Spirit. Really, if you put the two answers together, you get the best definition, which is that we, we come to the Father in the name of Christ, you know, by Christ, um, and uh, with the Holy Spirit as well. So, prayer is Trinitarian, both in the sense that we're speaking to a triune God, but also we're only able to pray because of the work of the triune God. Because Christ has died on our behalf, we can now approach God with confidence. Because we have the Spirit in our hearts, He intercedes for us with groanings you know, too deep uh, to bear. So, you know, the, the, who God is is interwoven with our, even our conversation with Him. So I thought a good place to start would just be to kind of work through that definition and look at some of the texts that are here. So if you have your Bibles, let me just throw out a few texts and we can kind of just read through these. Um, could someone look up Psalm 1017? Well, if you got that. And then if someone else could look up Psalm 62, verse 8. Then it has that. And then if someone else could look up uh, Matthew 7, 7 through 8. So this is, this is, these verses are going to be specifically unpacking what is meant when it says prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. So Psalm 10, verse 17. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. And then Psalm 62, verse 8. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is the refuge for us. And then Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Okay. What's the, what's the consistent theme that you see in all three of these verses about what prayer is? Coming before God. Coming before God, yeah. But what about on the part of the person who is coming to God? Coming in confidence and humility. Uh, and, and this it says trust in Him, which is, mm-hmm. if you're trusting in someone, you're, you're kind of, if you're coming to them for help, then it's, it is a position of humility, it's a position also of confidence if you're trusting in someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that sense of, of relationship there. Psalm ten seventeen. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, right? He's looking back at what God has done for His people. Psalm 62 is speaking, you know, those kind of words of encouragement. Trust in God at all times, you know. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. So based on who God is, based on what He's done, based on His promises, we are invited and, and even commanded. Psalm is not saying, you know, you might want to consider trusting in God. It says, trust in Him at all times. You pour out your heart before Him. So there's that relationship there. But I think what, what comes out most strongly is that in each case, you know, look at Psalm 10. God has heard the desire of the humble. Psalm 62, pour out your heart before God. Matthew 7, 7-8, ask and it will be given to you. 
So prayer is not just a matter of finding the right magic words to make the rain gods give you rain. Prayer is actually us laying bare our hearts before God. It's us bringing our desires to God. It's not us, um, you know, masking where we are to try and find the, the right thing to, to unlock the door, as it were. But it is built and predicated on this whole idea of relationship. This goes back to what Timothy was talking about, about prayer being conversation with God. Uh, it's, it's our conversing with God and our communion with God. You can begin to see already how this is going to play into the role that prayer plays in worship, right? But even just at, at the broadest level, it's offering up our desires to God. But does that mean we can just say, hey, this is just you know, a candy machine and I can just put in my quarter of prayer and press the button for whatever I want and God gives me what I want? Well, the definition doesn't end there. Because it says prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God, but it qualifies that. It says, for things agreeable to His will. Um, the text they give here is 1 John 5.14. Uh, and this is the confidence that we have in Him. That, after, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Or think even of, of Christ um, in His earthly ministry. Jesus actually is God, and He has a relationship with God the Father, you know, unlike anyone else. And yet, when He prayed in the garden, what did He pray? What was His famous prayer? Not my will, but... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so Christ is pouring out His desires, His deepest, most honest, raw desires in that moment of temptation and affliction. And yet, even Christ Himself says, and yet, not my will, but your will be done. If that's true of, of the perfect Jesus, how much more true should that be for us as imperfect people? Did you have something to... Um, just as you were saying, um, pray His will. Um, I think of the Lord's Prayer as something like the whole... Um, when the Holy Spirit works in me, your will turns into God's will. Mm-hmm. So basically it's... Right now, if we're sinners, our will is going to be what we want. But as we know Him, our will is going to be His, what He wants. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, in passages where um, there's kind of a pleading, Lord, hear our prayer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, would it be fair to say that God hears true prayer as kind of that defines? And if it's not, if it's not heard, it's not a sincere or a real prayer. Do, do you know what I'm asking? I'm not sure. Prayer qualified by uh-huh. what you read from the Catechism would be prayer that God would hear. Yeah. Because yeah. it's sincere and it's asking his will. Yeah. It's going to come with that humility. Right. Whereas does that make sense? Like prayers that are offered yeah. that aren't truly seeking God's will. Right. Yeah. It kind you of can hear that prayer per se. Yeah. I mean like right. when we talk about God not hearing prayer. Right, right, not right. It's not, not that he's yeah. Unaware of yeah. what's being asked. Does it, that make sense? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think 
keeps us from different dangers. Because the reality is, Christians aren't the only ones who pray. You go to all religions all over the world and there's prayer. But even at that, there's radical differences. You know, Christian prayer is, is very different from the prayer of Islam or Buddhism or tribal religions or even just the kind of, you know, the average person who, when they're having a tough time, shoots out a prayer kind of thing. And I think what biblical prayer helps to do is it says on the one hand, you can't just have a kind of rote ritualistic prayer. Muslims pray five times a day. But it's, it's ritual prayers in a language they don't even speak or understand oftentimes, simply t- as an act of pure external obedience. You know? Yeah. I remember um, there, um, I went to Catholic, you would pray the rosary and you would have to pray a certain amount, and there was always this sort of sense of obedience about it. And I remember one time in eighth grade, I got to school, we, we prayed a whole set of the rosary, which is like, it's like ten, it's a, it's a lot of prayers. Yeah, yeah. And I was nodding off, but we just, it wasn't even, it was more pay attention. Yeah. But it wasn't, you know, you weren't, it was just getting that much done. Right, you know right, I mean? so right. So it wasn't really... Yeah, and in that kind of conception, prayer is is viewed as a spiritual discipline in the sense of it's it's almost it's almost like these ascetics who will you know deprive themselves of something because it's about kind of I'm showing my dedication by how I'm so focused and disciplined in my prayer, but there's not really uh, an engagement of the heart or even an external conforming of the will. It's a purely external thing. But the other side of that, and this is probably more the danger in just our broad culture, is that, well, prayer is just, we so emphasize the conversation aspect without any real understanding of who God is or what our relationship with Him is based upon, that we end up just sort of saying, well, prayer is just me kind of telling God what I want. And God becomes Santa Claus. And there's not a real balance there either. The biblical definition doesn't let you off in either way. It says, okay, this is not just about external discipline. Um, God's not Santa Claus. Oh, no. <laughs> um, even though I'm standing in front of a Christmas tree. But <laughs> the Christmas tree will shoot sparks. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, it keeps us on, on both sides. Our hearts have to be engaged. Our wills have to be engaged as well. Uh, what I was thinking earlier, actually, was Romans 8. Um, and, and actually, taking that back to how you were saying prayer is Trinitarian. In, in prayer, you see the gospel too, because Romans eight talks about how we aren't really worthy. Our, our, we don't know how to pray as we should. Mm-hmm. The Spirit has to intercede for us. Mm-hmm. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, even yeah. in our saved state that he's talking about in 
where we're walking in spirit in Romans 8. Um, we still don't know how, how to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us Christ to the deeper words. And then later on, we have a great high priest, Christ, who is interceding for us at the uh, throne of God mm -hmm. before the Father. Uh, and uh, it is because of Christ's substitutionary atonement that we can even pray. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this goes back to what Timothy mentioned earlier. The reason why we pray, and this, is a, this can be a big paradigm shift for people. So for most people, and I think this is true of religions across the world, whether you're talking about the kind of rote, you know, external approach or the kind of just emotional, internal approach, but both of those people have in common is that I'm trying to get God to do what I want. Or I'm trying to appease the deity in some way. And so both of them kind of have a very transactionary approach, you know. Um, biblical prayer is very different, especially when you come to this from a Reformed perspective. God is sovereign. God has foreknown everything and predestined everything. So, you know, we, we don't have this vision where God has His plan and then Beth just says a really good prayer and Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to change my entire plan you know, to kind of accommodate this, because that was such a great prayer. You know, we're not, we're not changing God's mind on things. We're not changing His plan. So why do we pray? Let me just throw that out there. Why, 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 why do we pray? Especially if someone, you know, as Reformed people, you believe that what's going to happen is going to happen. Aren't you just fatalists? Why do you even bother? Okay. Can you unpack that? Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, so prayer is actually something that changes us. Yeah. There's a story um, R.C. Sproul tells about how he was in a theology class in seminary and somebody asked I think it was why do we do evangelism yeah. and so they kind of go around the room and all these seminary students are trying to come up with these like really profound answers you know and trying to be like really creative about what, what, what we, why we do evangelism and what we do it for and everything and get around to R.C. Sproul and he's like a little bit unsure but he says well don't we do evangelism because God told us to do evangelism and his teacher's like bingo <laughs> that's a big part of it like don't ever gloss over that we are commanded to pray so even if we don't understand why, even if we had no other reasons in our mind, that would be enough to make us do it. But you add to that, it does glorify God. And I think what Sarah said is central. That we, we pray not so we can change God, but because prayer changes us. And, yeah. Even this hymn says, um, like verse 3, um, Your former mercies here renew, here to our waiting hearts proclaim the sweetness of your saving name. Um, here may we prove the power of prayer to strengthen faith and sweeten care to teach our faint desires to rise and bring all heaven before our eyes so it's, yeah. it's kind of about reorienting our mm -hmm. minds mm -hmm. you know as a Calvinist prayer is the chief exercise of faith yeah yeah, yeah. it's that faith without words yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was going to add on this was something I was being held. Uh huh. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's where prayer can be very simple. Yeah. Lord, help. You know, or it can be magnificent and intricate. We'll look at that in a moment. But um, the Southern Presbyterian theologian Benjamin Morgan Palmer said that you know prayer is is a sign of dependence. You don't think about it this at a human, purely human level. If I go to Josiah and say, "Hey, can you help me with this?" I'm asking because I can't do it myself, and I, I need someone else's help. I'm admitting that I'm insufficient in some way, and that he has something that I don't have. He's something that I that I need. Um, we, that's true at our at a human level, and it's true at a divine level as well. But the very fact that we come in prayer is an admission that we're not perfect, that we don't have everything that we need, that we're not infinite, that there are things that are outside of our control. And that's where a church that emphasizes prayer, that has prayer as its lifeblood, is a church that is humble and a church that is dependent on the Lord and a church that's looking to the Lord for its vision, for its purpose. When we first started this work of Kirk of the Plains a little over a year ago, we started out with prayer meetings. Before we added any Bible studies, before we added any outreach events, before we added websites and t-shirts and anything, we just spent several months gathering every couple of weeks just to pray. Because we want that to be at the heart of who we are. We can spend all the time we want talking about how we want to look to God for direction. But if we never actually stop and look to God for direction and come before Him in prayer, then it's just, just words that we're speaking. So we want that to be part of the heart uh, of, of our church, as it should be the heart of every church. So, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things that are agreeable to His will in the name of Christ. And uh, there's a lot of texts we could look at here, but they mention John 16, 23 to 24. Uh, could somebody look that verse up for us? And... John 16 what? John 16, 23 and 24. Heaven. Okay. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be filled. Okay. Now, who was that speaking there? Christ. Christ speaking. And he's, he's kind of introducing this paradigm shift, as it were, and his disciples' thinking. Um, because they have many examples of prayer. They know what prayer is. The Old Testament is full of prayer. The book of Psalms is a book of prayer. And yet, now Jesus is saying, when you pray, pray in my name. My relationship with the Father, who I am, what I have done, is going to be part of your prayer. Um, Now, there's a lot to say about that. The, The larger catechism actually has several questions. Why are we to pray in the name of Christ? How does the Spirit help us to pray? It unpacks some of those things. We don't have time to go into all of that. I can give you the things to look up if you want to later. But, but the point that's being under, um, underlined here, underscored, is that prayer is something that involves the Trinity. Not just God the Father, or not just the, the, the Son, or not just the Spirit. And sometimes we can feel like, well, I'm more comfortable with Jesus. He seems nicer. You don't have that option. We, we come to God... And God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and so prayers that leave out, you know, every other person of the Trinity except your favorite one is not really a faithful biblical way of praying. Yeah. Okay, so what does it mean, pray in my name, then? Like, 
Well, does okay. That mean, does that mean more than simply saying in the name of Jesus? Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Or the Son of God in some way, you know. Let me let me just. Oh, go ahead. Joel Beaky has a note. Has what? Joel Beaky has a note. Okay. Go for it. Go for it. I don't know if they'll help you. To pray in Jesus' name is to approach God through faith in Christ's person and saving work. As to those, as those to whom the Father has given the right to make our request boldly because of His Son. Yeah. What was the last part? Um, last couple. As those, as those to whom the Father has given the right to make our request boldly because of His Son. Okay. So, is so, bearing that in mind? So, I think I, I think it means a couple of things, uh, and and more than we can really unpack tonight. But just a short answer. The, the picture biblically is we're, we're coming before the throne room of God. So God is the Lord of the universe. And just like if you have, you know, um, if you're a peasant going to the king to make your request or statement, um, you can't just walk into the throne room. But let's say that, you know, the prince has sent you and said, go to the king, go in my name. You know, um, then that, that is what grants you interest and what gives you the right to say what you're going to say, to ask what you're going to ask. So that's the picture of what's happening when we pray in Jesus' name. Now what that means for us as we're actually praying, part of what it means is that we are, are, um, we are coming in faith. We are mindful of the fact that... We pray in Jesus' name because we trust that He is our Savior. Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise, if you take Jesus out of the equation, then what is our relationship to God the Father? He, he's the judge. We are in the docket. You know, um, We still have a relationship with God, but it's in a very different way. It's only with Jesus in the picture that we can come as a son, as a, as a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. So praying in Jesus' name, part of what that might mean is that we say, in Jesus' name, Amen. You know, that, that can be a good thing to do. But that's designed to help remind us that the only reason we can come with such confidence, the only reason we can come with such boldness, the only reason that we can offer up our desires to God is because of what Christ has done. And because we have His Spirit in us that is teaching us to pray and, and shaping our hearts and shaping our desires. Um, two more things I want to look at and then we'll move more quickly through this last uh, part. Um, but prayer is an offering up of our desires to God, the things agreeable to His will, in the name of Christ, with confession for our sins. Um, now, there's a couple of texts that they have uh, here. Could somebody look up Psalm 32, verses 5 and 6? Emily? And then um, someone else could look up 1 John 1, 9. Yeah. Okay. And then I'll get Daniel 9. So Psalm 32, 5 through 6, Daniel 9, 4 through 19. I'll look that one up. And then 1 John 1, 9. So, Emily, do you have that Psalm 32? Um, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my sin. I said, I will confess my sins to the Lord, and you forgave me of my sin. Say well. Therefore, let everyone who is godly 
offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not, they shall not reach you. Uh, and then Timothy, 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay. 1 John 1 9 is the kind of classic summary statement of what that means that we, we are called and commanded to confess, but we're also given the assurance ahead of time that if you confess your sins, again, this is that heart confession, not just. You know, oh, I've got to remember all the bad things I did so I can mention them and then I'll get my record wiped clean. That's not just what's happening here. But we do have that, that assurance that Christ is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you want to see examples of what that looks like, Psalm 51 is a great example of what a prayer of confession looks like. Daniel 9, verses 4 to 19. Uh, we won't read through the whole thing now, just time, but that's a good reference to write down, see how Daniel deals with his sin and his own prayer and his own confession. Can I also think, I just have Psalm 38. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It has that. Yeah. And and that one also has an element of help, I think. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Wonderful examples. And then the last part. So we're praying, we're offering up our desires to God, the things that we're able to His will, in the name of Christ, by the help of the Spirit, with confession of our sins. And then here's the last part. And thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Um, could someone look up Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5? What was the Daniel verse? Uh, Daniel 9, 4 to 19. 4 to 19? Yeah. Psalm 103. Psalm 103, 1 to 5. And if someone else could do Philippians 4, 6. Do you have uh, Psalm 103? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. Okay. And then Philippians 4, 6 says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So prayer is an offering up of our desires, but with that is a recognition of our sin and a recognition of God's mercies. So we recognize who we are and what we've done and who God is and what He's done. And, and, and at the heart of that, again, is this coming in the name of Christ by the help of the Spirit to the Father, this recognition that we have been saved and because of that we are brought into a place where we can now pray. So that's a, that's a kind of theology of prayer, and there's a whole lot more to be said on that. But that's a, that gives us a working definition. Now let's take that understanding of prayer and say, okay, now what special role does that play in our corporate worship on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening? Um, again, there's probably a number of ways we could address that. But um, I want to suggest that 
um, we return to this idea of prayer as conversation that was mentioned earlier. Um, one of the things that you'll hear people say sometimes is that biblical worship is, is dialogical. What does that mean? That's not a word we use all the time. Dialogical worship. Mm-hmm. There's a dialogue, a conversation going on. It's not one-sided. Yes. Yes. Yeah, worship worship is a two-way street, is what it's saying. Uh, Not that we worship God and God worships us, but that in the context of worship, there are, as it it were, there's two parties speaking. Um, I love the way that, uh, that one document puts it. It says that worship, in its essence is a meeting of the triune God with His chosen people. This is not just a time for us to meet with our friends. It's not even just a time for me to meet with God. Worship is not, corporate worship is not about you as an individual primarily. It's about you as part of God's people primarily. That has radical implications for your individual life. But we need to sometimes be pulled out of our individualistic approach and say, no, this is about us coming as a people, as God's people. And so because worship is a meeting between the triune God and His chosen people, a worship service has two principal parts. First, you have the elements which are performed on behalf of God through a representative voice. That would be primarily through the minister. Okay? And then on the other hand, you have those elements which are performed by the congregation. And that can happen either through... The congregation all speaking with one voice, as happens in our singing, or it can happen um, through a representative voice, as will often happen in our in our prayers. Um, so there's this there's this twin aspect where where God speaks through His representatives, and where we speak to God, and so that dialogue shapes our worship. Um, what I just read to you actually comes from the the OPC's directory for worship, which is kind of their their, their guide for how to put together a worship service for pastors. And they say, okay, because worship has this two-way aspect, try to set up your worship service where they alternate. God speaks, we respond. God says something, we, we respond to that. Where there's this kind of back and forth because that's how worship is laid out. That's how worship uh, is structured biblically. Can so I what go ahead the, and make this point? Yeah. Um, Catholic Church would say that I have to, for me I have to be very careful with the God's representative thing mm-hmm. because when I, how I grew up the priest he wasn't they weren't they actually well I mean that is true they did they but like confession of sin like when you go into confession mm-hmm. they actually would think when you confess it to the priest you're confessing it to God so it's just I guess how, yeah. is, how what is then what I have to what is the difference yeah, that's a very good question. The, the way you can kind of break down the difference between a Protestant understanding of what a pastor does and a Roman Catholic understanding of what a priest does, um, in both cases, both Protestants and Roman Catholics would say that man has authority from God. We both agree on that. The difference is, what's the nature of that authority? What's the extent of that authority? Roman Catholics would say, well, the priest, the bishop, the archbishop, the Pope particularly, has what we would call a magisterial authority. They can declare things on the basis of the authority they've received, and it's true because they've said it. Whereas Protestantism says 
the pastor does have, the elders do have very real authority, but it's always a ministerial authority. They have a very limited scope of what they are able to say and what they are able to do. In essence, what is defined by God's Word. So a pastor cannot just say what he wants to say or do what he wants to do and say, because I've been given this office by God, I have that kind of blank check authority. No, they have a very specific task. And if they stray from that task or stray from that message, then they're abusing that authority and that authority is not, is not valid. Well, I would even say they would say that it's only certain times, but I do think they would say that like, the Pope is infallible in some of the things he says and that's... Yeah, when he's speaking, yeah. Like when he in his council. Right, when he's but, speaking ex cathedra is yeah. the term that he used. But, but still, he's not, he's just speak, he's speaking because he right. thinks it's from God. Right, right. So that's where we, we, there is still this idea of God's people having a representative, but it's a representative with what we would call a ministerial authority. And it's not a representative in the sense that, okay, we need someone to stand between us and God. We have someone to stand between us and God. His name is Jesus. Right? But the minister um, will sometimes, um, I can't think of a better term than this, but to kind of perform that role or speak on our behalf or speak on God's behalf. But it's not to be a mediator between us and Christ. We have that role directly to Christ. Um, so let's just unpack this a little bit to explain what we mean. Um, so what are the ways that God speaks in worship? What are the elements... That, that he performs or performed on his behalf. Um, well, there are a number we can mention. The, the call to worship, uh, the, the salutation, the benediction, the reading and preaching of the word, and in the sacraments. Those are the primary ways. Those are also, you know, sometimes people will wonder, why is it in Reformed churches that you have to be ordained to give the benediction? Like, doesn't that seem really random? Where in the word do you see... It's saying you have to be a pastor to get the benediction. But there's a logic there. There's a logic there. And the logic is the benediction, that word actually means, you know, good word or good speech. It's the, the minister giving God's blessing, speaking on behalf of God. And so that's something that men are called to. It's not just that, you know, any person has the authority to kind of speak God's blessing uh, at the end of the service. Yeah. Um, so there's, there, there's kind of this, this, this logic uh, underneath that, that in those times when God is speaking, um, God's representative, the man who has been called up by God and ordained by the church, is to, to fill that role. We looked a couple weeks ago at, at the reading and the preaching of the word and the worship service, and that's one of the things you see. You go back to the Old Testament, they didn't just have everybody in the church take a turn standing up and reading the scriptures. It was actually given to the priesthood, not just to preach or to teach, but even to, to, to do the public reading of Scripture. Now, all of us are called to read the Bible. All of us are called to do that. But in standing up and, and reading that corporately, there's a, an aspect where that connects with the office of what the minister is to do. When Paul speaks to, uh, I believe it's, if it's, is it Timothy or is it Titus? One of the, the pastors that he's put over the church, he says, commit yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to the teaching and preaching. Not just to the teaching and preaching, but the public reading of Scripture is, is part of that. So there's these kind of elements where, where God is speaking to His people. But there's also elements where we speak in response. And those would be in prayer, in song, in, in our offerings, and also in hearing the Word. We're never passive. We're always engaged. 
hearing the word in our confession and in receiving and partaking of the sacraments. So even in those times, like the preaching is most clearly when God is speaking through His representative, right? Um, but we are always to be engaged. We're never passive um, participants. We're always active participants in worship. And so prayer is one of those primary ways where we speak most directly to God as His people. Um, now I want to just spend the last few moments just looking through the bulletin. But any anything to add to that or questions to ask? I know we're kind of doing a high level flyby of this, but maybe I can ask later, but I still I still don't quite get how that's different than me either. Yeah, let's talk more after because yeah, yeah. that's a that's a very good question. Well let's just look at some of the prayers that we have and I know you all don't have bulletins on you, but I was just looking through the bulletin from last week and uh, in, the, in the bulletin that we used even just this past Sunday we had a prayer of invocation and adoration we had a prayer of confession we had a prayer of thanksgiving and supplication and then we also had, this isn't listed in the bulletin but it was it's part of the worship service what's called a, a prayer of illumination so there's something like four or five different types of prayer in there and you, you, whether you've grown up in the church or not you may be kind of wondering what's the difference between all of them why do we give them these special names um, well part of it is there is a, a kind of a flow to the worship service and so what's happening in the prayer of invocation you may know what it means to invoke something or someone yeah and, and also to, to kind of to call as it were to, to to summon in a certain sense. You are invoking Christ, you're invoking His Spirit to, to, to be present with you. And so we have this, this prayer where we both call Christ, or not call Christ, but, but, but call um, on God's presence, as it were, and also offer up adoration for Him, who He is. So we're, we're as Joe says, it, it, it's beginning the worship service. Um, we're not just doing going through the motions for the sake of going through the motions. This is a conversation and a dialogue with God. And that means both parties must be engaged. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't think that God's presence is kind of outside the building and then we pray our prayer of invocation and it moves inside the building. God is everywhere at all times and in all places. But He also promises to be with His people in a special way in these elements of worship. And so we're, we're acknowledging that in our prayer, saying that we come to worship Christ. We're coming into your presence. We're coming into your, uh, your courts with thanksgiving, as it were. And so that's reflected in our prayer, which is also often why our first song kind of has similar themes. It's calling on God. you to worship you. Yeah, yeah. It's an acknowledgement that we come, we're coming into His presence to worship Him, to enter into fellowship and communion with Him. Um, so, so, so it's not so much we're calling God to be with us. God is always with us. But we're, we're, we're calling our own hearts and recognizing that we're coming into fellowship with Him. So that's happening in that prayer of invocation and adoration. And then we often follow that up with us. So we're not calling God. I mean, if He is already there, but we're not calling Him. We're calling on both, as it were, to, we're to be present. But we're not summoning God. Does that make sense? I think that language of calling may be tripping up. Well, I guess what I want to okay, I want to make clear that God is God is always present. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. 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 I know He's already there, but I think in a sense it's it's more we are already well, yeah, we're acknowledging 
his presence more. Yeah. But I do think in a sense that he listens in, like you said, a special way. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're coming, yeah, we, we, we find communion with God in worship mm-hmm. in a way that would be different than just driving down the street. Well, like, I feel closer to God whenever I pray to him. Yeah. It's not that he isn't there, so in a sense I feel like perhaps the best way we could do, we could frame this is to think about the biblical language you know draw near to God and he will draw near to you yes. that's what's happening in the prayer of invocation we're drawing near to God and God is drawing near to us and that begins our worship and we come in praise but then seeing who God is also shows us who we are right and so what follows that prayer of invocation and adoration is a prayer of confession and we looked at some examples of that uh, in the scriptures already that the perfection of Christ and his character shows the imperfection of our own characters and so we come confessing our sins and we have that assurance of pardon from his word that as Timothy read from First John if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and now having that confidence that God is our God and we are his people and we have been redeemed In light of that, in Christ, we can now come and offer up our desires, offer up our prayers and our petitions. And that's where the minister will come on behalf of the people and say, let's put before the Lord our thanksgiving and our supplications. We're asking for His grace with people who are sick and we're seeking the expansion of God's kingdom and we're seeking, you know, all of these things that we're praying for, whether it's thanking Him for what He has done or seeking his intervention and in, in other affairs of the life of the church that happens in that prayer of thanksgiving and supplication. We're seeking for God to, to be faithful to His promises, to do what He's promised to do, and recognizing all the times and ways in which He has done that and continues to do that. And then finally we have that prayer of illumination, and that's where the minister comes to God before he opens the Word of God. And there's an important... Um, There's significance to that. Because preaching is not just something that can be done by anyone who, you know, can kind of read the Bible and understand what it's saying and just share it with someone else. The preaching of the Word has power because it's it's that bringing together of the Word and the Spirit. The Spirit of God speaking through the Word and speaking through uh, the preaching of the Word specifically. So the minister can't just... He may have put in 20, 30, 40 hours working on this sermon during the week. But when it comes time to preach, he doesn't just say, okay, I've done, my, I've done my homework, now I can share. He says, before I can do anything, we need to come and pray. And ask for God's Spirit to be present, to speak through me, to open up our own, the ears of, of those who are, are hearing as well. It's really building on that, that, uh, that idea that, that John Bunyan brings out so well. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can't do more than pray until you have prayed. We have to start with prayer. And that's what the minister does even as he comes to preach, as he starts with prayer, seeking God's presence. Um, and, and there will be other prayers that might come up in a worship service as well. Some worship services, you might end up combining some of these. Some of them, they'll be more distinct. Sometimes you'll have, especially with prayers of confession, you might have an actual printed one that we all pray with one voice. There's different forms this can take. But the element of prayer is something that is woven all through the worship service from start to finish because we're having a conversation with God. We're entering into a dialogue with Him. Not just as individuals, but as God's people. Um, there's, a, there's a richness there to that that should always 
leave us um, amazed. Uh, I think it's, it's interesting how, how little attention we can give to this. Uh, we spend a lot of time practicing the music to make sure that it sounds right. We spend a lot of time working on the sermon to make sure that that's as it should be. But how many times do we come in prayer? Whether it's as, you know, people in the pew or, or those who have to lead in prayer. And we, have, we give no thought beforehand to what we're going to say. Um, there's a really wonderful book that was written in the 19th century by a, a Presbyterian pastor called Samuel, Minner, Samuel Miller called Thoughts on Public Prayer. And this whole book is designed to kind of help pastors learn how to pray in a public worship service. And here, here's what he said. He, this is him writing 150 years ago. He said, It would be difficult to estimate the amount that has been written by Presbyterians, as well as others, concerning the composition and delivery of sermons. Lectures and volumes, almost innumerable, have been lavished on this subject. And in pursuance of their instruction, nothing is more common than to bestow unwearied labor on the preparation of discourses for the pulpit. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, as Presbyterians, we like to talk about what preaching should look like. And there are endless numbers of books and lectures and conferences and articles and workshops and everything unpacking the significance of preaching and what it looks like and what it should look like and what it doesn't look like and on and on and on. That's not a bad thing. But, he says, um, how much less of a nature of counsel seems to have been given to candidates for the holy ministry to aid them in the acceptable performance of public prayer? And how much less attention seems to be bestowed on the parts of those candidates on this whole subject? So he says, while we love to talk about preaching, and we should, it is the high point of the worship service, we oftentimes give no training to our ministers and no training to our people as to what public prayer actually looks like. And what little training is there, we oftentimes don't pay much attention to. That's what he's saying. So this lesson tonight is not answering every question there is about prayer. It's not answering every question there is about public prayer or about what prayer does in worship. But hopefully it, it, it piques our interest to say this is a, something that we should be really in tune to. Because it's a vital part of that, of that dialogue, that conversation that takes place. And there are bright and biblical and mature ways of doing it and immature and unbiblical ways of doing it as well. And we constantly want to be growing. Because again, as Sarah said, prayer is not primarily about getting God to change and getting Him to do what we want. Prayer is primarily about us showing our dependence and our obedience to Him and Him changing and transforming us. So time spent in prayer is time spent being matured in Christ. That's something we should all want and desire. So let, me, let me end us uh, with a brief prayer. Father, we do just come with, with thankfulness that we can come with thanks, that we can come at all, that we can come with, with great confidence um, as a peasant to a king, not with no introduction or no um, authority, but as one who comes with the authority of the prince, the king's son. We do thank you, Lord, that, that um, we have the opportunity to learn about prayer in your word and from wise example. And we do ask, Lord, even as we turn now to a time of more prayer, that you would um, help our hearts to be fully engaged and enlarged and our minds to be engaged with the truth that you have revealed. That prayer would not just be something that we do off the cuff or without thought or reflection or intention 
but instead something that we pour our whole being into, knowing that we can come with confidence as we bring things agreeable to your will in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of your mercies. And we do pray all this in the name of the Son. Amen.